Well, here it is. It's time to go inside EMS. I am your host, Chris Sabalero, and with me back, with me back, with me again, is my good friend, Kelly Grayson, KG. Welcome back to the show. Good to be back, actually. Yeah, man, we're going to talk about... This is our 10-year anniversary, man. It is our 10-year anniversary. 10 years tomorrow, actually. The 13th will be 10 years. We started this show. And, uh, you know, it's been a great ride. We've had over 600 episodes in 10 years. We, you know, we get about 42,000 downloads a month. Um, You know, 81% of the people, of course, are listening to us in the United States. But we've got some countries that listen to us. Folks in Jamaica, Saudi Arabia, Canada, Australia, Mexico, the UK, United Arab Emirates, and, uh, you know, it goes all the way down to the Philippines, South Africa, and we're certainly excited that people around the world that are tuning into Inside EMS, we're excited about that. And, uh, you know, 10 years, I didn't get you anything. It's okay, man. It's just just your presence is a gift enough. Interesting. Uh, you know, when you quite sure how to how to feel about that um pretty sad actually uh nothing against you but i'd i'd hope for a long-lasting relationship with someone better looking actually so well i mean that's okay i mean i can't uh i can't be the picture for everybody but uh i'm uh i'm glad that we still have a you know a good relationship (laughs) after 10 years but uh you know, one of the things that I want to share with the audience before we get going is, you know, we've been recording now and check us out on YouTube, EMS one video on YouTube, where you can check out all the shows that we've done uh, recently. And uh, we're going to be building a big uh, video catalog and uh, some really great things to come on EMS one video. So go ahead and check that stuff out. But, you know, Kelly, w- one of the things that I think, uh, you know, we talk about is y- you're very, very, uh, busy in the ems world tour of Mm -hmm. training the next generation of ems provider and one of the things that i think is very very admirable and you do a lot of work man right i mean you travel around we were just talking you know you're going to be going to connecticut again you're going to be up in alaska in november and uh you know so as you were uh mia for the past couple of shows you know we've talked about uh you being on the ems world tour of course that necessarily wasn't the truth, uh, but knowing what was going on and uh, not wanting to uh, tell your business um, to the listeners, uh, we kind of kept up the EMS World Tour or being on special assignment. But you've been very, very vocal about what went on with you, yeah. and I think that this is something that uh, we want to be able to share because I think from a standpoint of uh, what was going on medically with you, as well as how to deal with those things as a paramedic, mm-hmm. I think we're going to find, but you've written a couple articles on the fact, but, you know, so recently you had a pretty serious medical scare, maybe give the audience a little bit about what happened to you. I had an episode on uh, April the 14th at a, a, a literary uh, a writer's retreat in Wichita Falls, Texas. Uh, that turned out to be a, a, a massive pulmonary embolus. Um, I had we had been socializing and eating and and uh, drinking a little bit, and uh, the the party was was breaking up. And I went back to uh, my my cabin that I had rented. When I got to my truck after walking just a very short distance, I was I was pretty short of breath, and I thought, "Ooh, I've got to get my fat butt into shape. This is not good." With the little uh, little drinking and a little good food does this to you. Um, 
And by the time I drove over to my cabin, it was bad. And when I say bad, I mean like breathing 48 times a minute, hyperventilating bad. Uh, and, um, I, I legit thought I was going to die. Um, and on top of that, even though I legit thought I was going to die, I refused to call an ambulance. And, uh, you know, I, I can think of stupider decisions I've made in my life, but I, I can't really pinpoint one right off the top of my head. Uh, but, um, the episode lasted there. The cute phase of it lasted probably an hour. Uh, when I was breathing 48 times a minute, it was literally and, and desperate. And, uh, about 45 minutes into that, I thought to myself, I said, you're, you're an idiot. Go inside the cabin, uh, or people are going to find you dead in your truck in the morning. And, uh, when I went in the cabin, um, my roommate was in the bathroom at the time when he came out of the bathroom, he just looked at me and stopped in mid sentence. And I just pointed my finger at him very weakly and said, don't you dare call an ambulance for me and, uh, and collapse on the bed. And he said, okay, um, you're the paramedic. I won't call the ambulance for you. He said, but, uh, the moment you go unconscious, uh, uh, implied consent applies and, uh, I'm going to do what I need to do. So, um, Came back. Uh, I cut my trip uh, short by a day and and saw my personal physician Friday morning. And uh, he he ordered a, a battery of tests and it turned out I had a DVT and a, a pretty severe pulmonary embolus. So lucky to be here. And lucky yeah. to be alive. Well, I'm glad you're here. We wouldn't be able to celebrate 11 years. So, but, yeah. uh, you know, Kelly, so. Uh, I think there's a lot of things just to unpack here. I think one of the things mm -hmm. that we don't do well enough, you know, as paramedics is take care of ourselves, And yeah. we try to, uh, uh, you know, uh, make excuses uh, for the way that we feel. And uh, we mm -hmm. try to diagnose ourselves, right? And um, yeah. certainly before you knew that this was a pulmonary embolus and, you know, DVT, what, what did you think was going on? I mean, did you really think that it was just an out of shape thing? Maybe a little too much to drink? I mean, what what was going through your mind? How did, how did you rationalize well, it, it, how you were feeling? <laughs> well, I'm a paramedic. I'm capable of quite a bit of rationalization. Um, I, uh, I, it's, it's odd. It's, it's demonstrative of how stubborn uh, paramedics can be and, and how, how poor a patient that healthcare providers in general are. Uh, and it's also a uh, a pretty good peek into the uh, the the mindset and and uh, our ability to compartmentalize and try to be rational and problem solve. Uh, so it's it's both a a good view of the the paramedic's mind and and a really uh, great example of of how stupid we can be. While this was going on, I'm trying to you know, 15 minutes in, I said this is not good. This is this is not just you being short of breath from exertion. Uh, it's not easing up. Chris, I literally felt like uh, you ever piss off your coach in high school football and he made you run wind sprints until you vomited or passed out. Okay. Yeah. Take that, take that feeling and extend it for an hour. You don't get any better. You're just gasping. You cannot catch your breath. You're weak. Uh, and it does not ease up no matter how much you rest. So at the time, I'm thinking, okay, um, there's no chest pain, there's no nausea, there's no weakness, 
Uh, it could be an MI, but I don't think so. Um, and, and my last lipid panel and, and so on and so forth, I don't really, other than, than obesity, don't really have any, any major risk factors for cardiac disease. And I tried to check my pulse. I thought, uh, I thought this could be a tachyarrhythmia. Um, I wasn't having palpitations. Uh, but, I, you know, I've, I've dealt with plenty of people with tachyarrhythmias that only has severe dyspnea. And I tried to check my pulse and my hands were shaking so bad that I couldn't check my own pulse. And I thought, okay, CHF, well, you know, I am in the graphic uh, now, and, and, uh, but I don't have any problem with orthopnea. I, I don't, uh, I have exert, um, I don't have a problem lying back uh, or, or lying down. It's probably not CHF. I'm, I said, I'm moving air. Um, I'm not tight or constricted. It's not in type of bronchospasm. What the heck is going on? And after about 45 minutes of breathing like that uh, and being unable to slow it down or get it under control, uh, it occurred to me, God, you've been breathing 48 times a minute for close to an hour and you're not having carpopedal spasms. And that's when it hit me. Oh my God, I'm having a pulmonary embolus. Uh, I can't breathe because I'm not, I'm not uptaking any oxygen and uh, I'm not having carpopedal spasms because I'm not exhaling any CO2. Oh my God, I'm having a PE. So uh, I, I said to myself, you know, you need to get inside and and where you can at least dial nine one one if you can. And got inside the cabin and and I told you the rest of the story. I collapsed on the bed and told my my uh, after about an hour uh, and he came out of the bathroom. Um, I was feeling marginally better, but still bad. And uh, uh, I told him to give it a few minutes. And, and after an hour and 15 minutes, I was okay. Uh, uh, not great. Um, the rest of the night, if I went, uh, got out of bed to use the bathroom, I could, I could walk 20 feet and then have to sit on the side of the, the tub for five minutes to catch my breath. And that went on for close to 24 hours before it kind of evened out. But yeah. Denial uh, is more than just a river in Egypt. I, I had some pretty serious uh, uh, denial going on, and um, uh, but the whole time I was I was telling myself, trying to fight back the panic, and trying to tell myself, okay, figure it out, work the problem, um, you know, try to diagnose and see what's going on here. Uh, and then I realized, why the hell are you doing this? You're you're just doing this so you can die knowing what killed you. Yeah, yeah, right. And that was yeah, that's the it. question. Yeah, that's the question I, I want to get you to. I mean, you know, as you were going through the differential diagnosis of, of figuring out, and one, it took you way too long to figure out what the heck was going on with you. 45 minutes to figure out that you were having a PE. Well, you uh, try to make your brain function when you're breathing 48 times a minute. You may, I mean, I'm just saying you may need some continuing education, but uh, so yeah, but yeah, let's yeah. ask you this question, though, Kelly. I mean, at one point, you know, you finally got there and you said, oh, my God, I'm having a P.E. based on everything that you were feeling. What the heck were you thinking that you didn't want to go to the hospital at that point in time when you finally got there to say I wasn't thinking, you know what I mean? I wasn't thinking it's. I. Uh, um, you know, at the time I had a. Uh, I was in Wichita Falls, Texas, and I did not want to go to a uh, to a 
far in the hospital. Um, I didn't want to go to a, a local hospital. Uh, that particular hospital, I mean, it's a, it's a, Wichita Falls is a fairly decent sized city. Uh, but I kept flashing back to a good friend of mine who had called me, uh, from that hospital and said, uh, who was present at this event, uh, said, uh, Hey man, they're, they're about to have, send me to the cath lab for a, a global MI. And I said, okay, what's a global MI? He said, well, the, the, the doctor said I'm having ST elevation in every single lead. And I was like, oh, dude, you wouldn't be talking to me if that were going on. Um, tell me what's going on with you. And he gave me the history, and, and I asked a few uh, pointed history questions. And, and I said, dude, you, you're not having an MI. You're having pericarditis. And, um, and they were going to send him to the cath lab uh, for, for SC elevation, every lead, which is, a, as we know, is, is one of the cardinal signs of, of pericarditis. So, uh, I said, mention that before they take you in there. And he told the cardiologist, he said, you don't think it could be pericarditis? And he said, they, they stopped moving his, his bed and the pericard and the cardiologist looked at him and said, hold on, sit up, lean forward. And Ian leaned forward a little bit and grimaced and, and the doc just kind of wrapped him on the chest with his knuckles. And he said, I, I levitated off the stretcher and yelled. He said, oh, yeah, let's let's cancel the cath lab. I'm pretty sure you have pericarditis. So that was the hospital I would have been going to. And I, I was none too sanguine about uh, about that. And I really wanted to see my personal physician if I was going to go anywhere and I wasn't going to go to an ER. I thought that the best person to to um, decide what to do was my personal doctor, which yeah. was kind of stupid. Uh, so I really wasn't thinking it was just purity. I'm a paramedic paramedics call, uh, run the ambulance. They don't call the ambulance for themselves. And, uh, I was damned if I was going to call, uh, EMS in Wichita Falls, Texas and, and have the paramedics get off the truck and go, you look familiar. Do I know you from somewhere? So, yeah, but you were <laughs> only going to have that happen. You were only one hour away from Fort uh, from Fort Worth too, as well. So you could have went to some really good hospitals, really good heart hospitals in Fort Worth. But yeah, I could have gone to any any ma major world class yeah. hospitals in Dallas or Fort Worth, and uh, I just didn't. Yeah. So, but anyway, I mean, so that's interesting. So, I mean, let's take this. Let's switch gears a little bit, right? I mean, so we know what happened with you. Let's talk about you know some of the things that happened clinically with you, and then I really want to kind of end with. If we come across this in our uh, in our day, how do we deal with a patient that's feeling what you felt? But first off, maybe take us through a little bit of the diagnostics procedures. I mean, what did they do to confirm it? Uh, what did they show? I mean, so uh, what what could what could someone expect? Or, you know, as a paramedic now talks to a, a patient that may be having a pulmonary embolism, who's going through what you're going through. Yeah. Uh, what do we share with them of what to expect once we get them to a hospital? The real people, the well, real people that go to a hospital, not you. I mean. <laughs> real people that go to a hospital. Um, well, if you put a nasal capnograph line on someone who's having severe difficulty breathing uh, and there's no mechanical reason for it, you know, they're moving air well, they're, they're ventilating fine, uh, yet uh, the pulse oximeter and the, and the uh, capnography show they're hypocapnic and hypoxic they're probably having a PE. Uh, you probably have a pretty significant ventilation perfusion mismatch on the perfusion side. Um, and, what will that and waveform look like? 
normally the waveform would be okay because the waveform really indicates bronchial uh, more i mean that's what, what we normally would use in now, when I got to the the doctor's office uh, and gave him my my HPI, he said, "Okay, yeah, it could be this, it could be that. Yeah, it could have been a pulmonary embolus. It could have been a could have been a, an arrhythmia, uh, like you you initially thought." But uh, I'm going to order some tests, and so he orders a battery of tests, and I was going to take them across the street to the hospital to have the labs drawn. And as I was ready to walk out of the, the exam room, I said, hey, wait a minute. i got something else I want to ask you about. Unrelated note. I think I strained a calf muscle a year ago, and it has been nagging me ever since. And he said, uh, okay. And I said, yeah, it was, uh, I was, it was at a literary con in, in Tulsa literally a year ago. And, and I limped around with my left calf hurting bad the entire conference. And it, it waxes and wanes. It, it's a nagging injury, and I, maybe I need an MRI uh, and, and see if I, if I tore something. And he wheeled his stool over there and examined my lower legs for about 30 seconds and looked up at me and said, do you realize how much larger your left calf is than your right? And I looked down and went, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> and he just rolled his eyes and said, I'm adding a D-dimer, a venous Doppler study of your left leg, and a, 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 an echocardiogram, CT angiogram to your to your uh, 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 left unspoken were the words "you idiot," and and that's what it was. Uh, the D-dimer was was extremely elevated, um, and uh, the the venous uh, ultrasound tech uh, said. Nah, you didn't have a P. You didn't have a DVT. DVTs hurt too bad. You you wouldn't have been able to stand the pain. I was like, you don't know paramedics very well, do you, sister? Uh, I said, I think I've been dealing with this for a year and ignoring it. And she said, yeah, whatever. And five minutes later, she said, well, you made an effing liar out of me. Um, I've got a clot in my posterior tibial uh, vein, popliteal vein, and distal femoral vein, or one big clot that extends that far. They were never quite clear on that. Uh, and the CT angiogram showed uh, bilateral uh, large pulmonary emboli um, in the left distal main uh, pulmonary artery and both segmental branches. And in the right pulmonary artery, all three segmental branches. Uh, basically, I had severely compromised blood flow to 100% of my lungs. And uh, I suppose it could have been worse. It could have been a uh, could have been a saddle imbalance that, that killed me dead right then. Um, but uh, the, it's only marginally better. <laughs> um, it's pretty bad pulmonary embolus. And uh, yeah, I mean that's um, crazy, man. The it echo. Could it could have yeah. been worse. I could be doing the show with Ruben Farnsworth now. So uh, <laughs> that's really how it the echo shit was good. And, and the CT angiogram of my car vessels was good. Uh, echo was fine. There was, there was no hypotonic uh, wall movement. Uh, valves were all patent bloods flowing. Well, uh, didn't damage my heart. My BNP was elevated. It was about 1200. Uh, the best they can figure is, is that was due to right ventricular strain during yeah, the acute event, and, and uh, that should normalize uh, as time goes on. 
and um, I just have to uh, to break up the clot now. Take my my uh, my anticoagulants my yeah. and and uh, uh, wait. Yeah, it's a good excuse to get in shape, man, isn't it? I mean, the the snoo- the alarm went off. Either you hit snooze or you get the heck up and you do what you got to do, right? So, you know, I, I mean, I was joking, right? I said, you know, it could be worse. I could yeah. be doing the show with, you know, Ruben, uh, and I just picked Ruben's name out of the air. Ruben, how you doing? Um, but, um, you know, you're lucky <laughs> to be alive is what I'm the point I'm trying to make here. That's how it could have been worse is, you know, you were very close to, uh, I yeah. mean, we think about this, Kelly, this could have been hours days hours right hours or days that um yeah it would have been the last time that uh you know we talked but i mean let, let's talk a little bit about the treatment though i mean when you talk about something that's so prolific i mean something that's you know throughout your body um thrombolytics embolectomy i mean considerations apparently uh yeah those are definitely considerations uh uh, it, it seems now that the approach to PE and, and DBT is, is they only, they tend to only go the surgical route if it's a, uh, um, if it's non-responsive to, uh, to thrombolytics oh, uh, interesting. Uh, or non-responsive to, to anticoagulants. So uh, they, I, I probably would have, the ER during the acute event and it was going on. Um, but by the time I added that, uh, the, the clots wound up where they're going to wind up and, and that's, uh, it didn't kill me and we'll move forward from, from that premise. And, uh, uh, they thought that a conservative approach with, with anticoagulants was, uh, was the way to go. My coag panels are fine. I'm, I don't have any any problems uh, or, or any inappropriate clotting time or, or anything like that. Um, one doctor, one associate of my, my primary care physician called, gave me my CT angiogram results and scared the living daylights out of me because he ordered like a double dose of, of Eliquis uh, and said, you're going to be on it for the rest of your life. And yes, you had a massive pulmonary embolus and you're lucky to be alive. Uh, okay. Talk to you later. Click. <laughs> that was all I got. Um, Healthcare at its finest. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, F on bedside manner. Um, and the and F doesn't stand for failure. <laughs> no, it does not. Uh, I said some of those, uh, those F bombs. Afterwards, I immediately called my doctor and he talked me. To, he said, I, I wouldn't put anyone on Eliquis for the rest of their lives right. unless they had a clot of unexplained origin or their coag panels were were off and, and they were inappropriately clotting. He said, your coag panels are fine. Your labs are fine. Your your lipid panel is far better than it has any right to be. Uh, you're, you, you almost died, but truly... Uh, you're lucky to have uh, as few medical problems as you do uh, with your lifestyle and your weight. Yeah. So, so I mean, but, uh, how, but how are you now? I mean, so we think about it, your prognosis, I know you're back to work now. You talked about, yeah. uh, we talked uh, just before we started recording that you ran your fir- first code back yesterday. So, I mean, what ironically, they, what uh, probably saying? a massive pulmonary embolus that it killed yeah. the patient. I don't know that that's <laughs> um, ironic, man, but uh, yeah. Um, I definitely felt, you know, the, the cold hands of the reaper kind of brushing my neck going, Hey, this could be you. 
That's right. Um, I'm okay. Uh, by by the third or fourth day uh, after this, uh, the exertional dyspnea was pretty much gone. Uh, what has what has really uh, been the challenge is the psychological. Uh, you know, I, I have depression, and uh, now I've got another voice of doubt whispering in my ear, going, "You know, um, you really don't need to get up and do this. You need your rest." And right. and and listening to that that stupid little voice in my head that tells me to do all the things my that are not good for my depression, or or tells me not to do the things that will help me out of my depression, uh, telling that voice to shut up. Uh, you, you can't get in shape. You got to recover first. And, uh, that's what I walked out of the, the doctor's office, uh, with is, um, uh, you can't let your depression tell you tomorrow's a good time to start. You got to start now. Right. Right. And, uh, so how's that been going for you? Uh, I'm down, uh, about 20.2 pounds. I haven't weighed, uh, again, I'm about 20.2 pounds below my heaviest weight, um, I don't have any exertional dyspnea. Uh, I, I was worried, significantly worried. I missed two paychecks and, and uh, paramedics missing uh, missing uh, four or $5,000 worth of paychecks unexpectedly uh, sucks. But um, he said, you're not risking anything medically. You are limited only by, you know, the eloquence is, is a standard therapy for this and it will help. Uh, prevent further propagation of any emboli and start dissolving the clots that are there. You see, you are limited only by your pain threshold and how much exertional dyspnea you're willing to tolerate. And I was like, well, hey, I got both those off the charts. Uh, I can tolerate a lot of crap, um, <laughs> as we well know. So uh, I was I was worried about having to work my first code or go to one of the casinos and your patient over is over in annex B of, of BFE and you have to push your stretcher through a half a mile of plush carpeting uh, laden to, to get the guy who has a hangnail that he wants to refuse care for. I was worried about that because th- that's, that's a chore even when you're, when you're not feeling sick, but th- thus far, no problems. Uh, good, good. No exertional dyspnea. Um, Running a code uh, in my position is uh, it's only physically uh, taxing if I'm there doing CPR and I'm lucky enough that uh, I I rarely have to be the one doing compressions um, and my knees and my my uh, my lungs thank me for that uh, so I you know got the guy got the patient's airway and got the vascular access pushed the drugs ran the code. Uh, but it was uh, it was nothing really physically taxing or mentally. Um, doing pretty good. I, I just I have to play the the wait and see game, and I have to get my fat ass into shape. Hey, Plain Kelly, and simple. Me, there is no other way about it. Let me ask you a question. I mean, for someone, you know, yeah. I know that you've been, uh, you know, depression and so on. You've been very very open with that, which I think is very admirable as well as a, as a host of the podcast other people out there who have the same uh, challenges uh, know they're not alone. Right. But when you think about something like this, when do you flip the coin on things like weight loss surgery? And, you know, I mean, is, is that even consideration? I mean, should somebody who's having these events now start to think about um, some type of bypass gastric bypass or, you know, the Obera balloons that they put in the stomachs now and those types of things. 
I mean, yeah. so, uh, you know, because a, a lot of people will get the, the weight loss surgery secondary to physical ailment, right? The, you know, challenges, diabetes, high blood yeah. pressure, so on and so forth. I mean, when do you flip the yeah. coin on something like that to say, maybe I can't do it because of my metabolism, because of my genetics, and I may need to do a little bit something more drastic. I I think that, that uh, well, first of all, Looking back uh, on on this episode, uh, I have a, a very almost unlimited capacity for self delusion, uh, and and prior to this, I'd always been resistant to the idea of bariatric surgery uh, because I'm very stubborn. I tell myself that I can lose weight if I so choose, and it's just a matter of, of perseverance and willpower. Um, but uh, yeah. You know, bariatric surgery is on the table now. I, I got to admit that, you know, um, uh, that might be an option. I don't think it should be for me, uh, and I'm not going to go that route right now, um, simply because the it's not like I don't lose weight when I try. When I, when I try to shed the pounds, they come off quick. The problem is, is my mental state um, preventing me or making it more difficult to stay in that mindset and be diligent with my exercise, uh, and, and my food choices. It, it's, it's always been simple for me, uh, expend more calories every day than you consume. So, so I set a that... calorie limit and because, and by setting that calorie limit, I, uh, you know, eliminate calorie dense foods like, like heavy carbs and fats. And that works for me. And you know, Chris, uh, years ago, when I was working at the hospital, we had a weight loss challenge at work, and I lost close to 90 pounds in five months and, and did not feel bad. I felt great doing it. It's not like I was starving my body. Um, and I can drop the weight big time. Uh, the question is, is, is putting in the, the thing limiting factor is, is uh, being diligent and, and sticking with it. Yeah, but when you're when you're close to death, Kelly, wh where you've been, I mean, you know. Yes, you, I know. That's why bariatric you know surgery is on the table. <laughs> you know, I mean, just craziness. But yeah, let, let me get to the last question. I want you to, I want you to hit me with a. a you one know, a one more thing on the on the bariatric surgery, though. But yeah. it's one reason I've been resistant to it is because it is life altering surgery. I mean, you can have the 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 lap bands, the constricting bands, and everything, and they can adjust those, and it's not that big a deal. But but cutting out part of your stomach and stapling it, I've seen so many people have metabolic disorders and 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 digestive disorders following that, and and uh, uh, all sorts of problems maintaining adequate nutrition uh, because you're 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 eliminating part of your digestive system, and and some people don't deal well with that. Uh, on the other hand, um, compared to the other health risks that obesity brings, uh, it's a good choice in many cases, but I, I don't think it's appropriate for me yet. All right. Well, good. So. Well, give us a couple of the lessons learned and then maybe just talk a little bit about the, uh, if a paramedic comes across a patient that is experiencing what you did, uh, give them a couple tips and then close the show for us. Yeah. Uh, lesson number one to our fellow caregivers, be good patients and, and don't be stupid about your health. And we are the world's worst at taking care of ourselves. We will sit there and, and lecture patients about a healthy lifestyle while drinking these. Uh, now I will say that down to one or two a day, not a six pack or an, or an eight pack a day. Um, 
we'll lecture patients about healthy lifestyles and then after the call go smoke a cigarette uh and we we cannot do that it's it's uh it slapped me upside the face uh on april the 14th that uh it's it's time to actually start talking uh walking the walk uh, uh about your own health so um even if you have the capacity to rationalize and the p- capacity to be clinically uh, analytic uh, during your own medical emergency. Uh, ultimately, all it's going to do is, is give you the peace of mind when you die that you knew what killed you. So don't be stupid and and ask for help when it's needed. Treating the sort of thing you, you have with, with a massive PE, if it's a massive PE that includes major blood flow like a, like a saddle uh, embolus or a staghorn embolus, you're going to see hypo. Uh, you're going to see hypotension. You're going to see hypoperfusion, massive circulatory collapse, uh, and this is quite often the the code of unexplained origin that we we work with. Or uh, the one night where the patient had a major surgery literally the day before and collapsed uh, this morning with no warning. Um, but if you have a patient with respiratory distress of unexplained origin and they're ventilating appropriately. Uh, their lungs are clear, they're not bronchoconstricted, you might have a, a ventilation perfusion mismatch that you're, you're having to deal with. And one of the things, that the, the major clues is look at your pulse oximetry and your CO2. Someone who is having a pulmonary embolus will likely be hypoxic as well as hypocarbic because they're not exhaling CO2 for you to detect. Uh, as distinguished from simple case of hyperventilation syndrome where their CO2 is, is uh, uh, very low because they're hyperventilating, but they're, they've got a hundred percent oxygen saturation. So um, look at those things and, and, uh, and look at risk factors. I ignored a major risk factor. I got my DVT after an eight hour car drive. You know, uh, it's, it's so classic. It's almost stereotypical. And I sat and ignored it for a year. Um, and was so unconcerned with my own health that I didn't know my own leg was significantly swollen for a year. Um, don't be that guy. Uh, but when you have a patient with with unexplained sudden onset of respiratory distress, uh, but mechanically they're ventilating well, uh, be be really thinking about pulmonary uh, pulmonary embolus uh, and treat accordingly. Uh, get them to the hospital. Get them to a place that has cardiac cath lab capabilities and, and can uh, do an embolectomy or administer thrombolytics. But, hey, that's uh, we told you what I thought, which I wasn't thinking. Uh, we'd like to hear what you think. How's your health? Are you taking care of yourself? Uh, did me almost dying scare you into it? Let's hope so. Uh, but for myself and co-host Chris Cevallero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We're going to catch you guys next week.